Hello and welcome to Account Instruction Help and How To. In this lecture, we're going to continue on with the discussion of demand. At the end of this, we will be able to define the law of demand as it relates to rational decision making. We're going to explain terminology for individual wants and desires, how we're going to measure that. We're going to discuss spending rules and describe how individual demand curves can be used to create a market demand curve as well as calculate consumer surplus. So when we first go into this, we do want to keep in mind that when we think about costs, we're including all costs. We're not just including the cost that we see in terms of dollars. So most of the times when we look at costs, we see the sticker price, we see dollars, and we think that's the only cost. But even if something is basically free, we're going to have other costs that will be involved. For example, if we had a free movie or something like that, we do have the cost of waiting in line. We have the cost of getting to the movie theater and all these different types of costs. And if something is free, usually the line is longer and that will be a cost and, and people will either choose to wait in that line for the free movie or not. And those are going to be included when we think of something like the demand curves. The demand curves, that downward sloping curve is going to, re is going to include, in theory, of course, all costs. And obviously when we think about these things, we have to think about it basically in theory. We're going to be talking about terminology in order to think about these things. These are conceptual terms. They are difficult to measure. The whole point of money is to help us measure things a little bit more easily. But of course, money is a tool that goes so far. It can't measure everything. It can help us to measure a lot. It can help us to trade a lot. But when we think about these concepts, we have to consider all costs, including money and other types of costs. So that's what we'll get into. We'll get into terminology in terms of how we can conceptualize these types of things. First, we want to take a look at the idea of marginal costs, marginal benefits. When we make decisions, we, also, we always want to think that we're going to make decisions on the margin, meaning we're making decisions on terms of what's going to be the next unit's benefit to us as compared to the cost to us. So that, that's going to be at the margin. So we're not considering the prior cost of the decision making. We're always making decisions at this point in time looking forward. That's normally what we do just intuitively when we just make decisions intuitively. If we go somewhere, should we get another piece of pizza? Should we get another refill on the Coke or something like that? then we're thinking intuitively on the margin. We're saying, do I want another one? I've already had three. Do I want another one? And intuitively, we'll make that decision either to do it or not at the margin at this point in time. And that idea conceptually would be that we're measuring in terms of what's going to be the added benefit if I go get another uh, refill on the soda versus the added cost of getting the refill on the soda. And the idea being that if the marginal benefits, the marginal increase are are higher than the marginal costs, then we're going to go do it. Even if we're talking about something like refills that are free on the soda, again, free in terms of dollars is not going to be the same as free in terms of marginal costs and marginal benefits. We will have one some point in time, in which case the soda can be completely free and we don't want any more <laughs> because we've had enough. And that means that the marginal cost is greater than the marginal benefit to us intuitively and therefore uh, we stop. Remember that term and that concept of the reservation price as well. The reservation price is going to be that highest price that we're willing to pay. And so when we think about market prices in terms of the reservation price, if uh, the reservation price is lower than the price that, I mean, if the market price is lower than the reservation price, our price that we would be willing to pay, then of course we would be purchasing it at that point. And we would have a benefit in terms of the difference between the reservation price and the market price that we would be willing to pay. Remember that every individual has a different type of uh, reservation price. Individuals are going to be different. We're going to have different reservation prices. When we talk about the market as a whole, 
we have to kind of combine all those into the entire market. Those reservation prices do include, of course, money and all other reservations involved, like the example of waiting in line, that's time that we're going to spend in order to wait in line and those types of things within that reservation price. When we consider the reservation price, note that it will change both in ourselves and times at different places and different areas. We know that there's going to be a lot of different factors that are going to change basically reservation price. We could, depending on where we're at, we could have different cultural influences, different uh, peer influences. So we are talking about a social science. We're not saying that the reservation price is something that's going to be constant. Even for any individual, it will change from place to place and time to time. And we do know that uh, social factors, of course, are going to be part of those changes in terms of what that reservation price is for any individual. It's also good to note the difference between needs and wants when we're considering the purchasing prices in terms of certain goods. Certain goods, of course, are things that we're going to need, things like water and food and whatnot, and then certain goods are going to be in terms of things that we want. Now, the interplay between need and supply, of course, will be a big factor on the price. For example, water being the th one of the things that we need most often, is going to be a relatively low price as opposed to something like a diamond which which is a relatively high price which we have practically no need for and of course the reason for that will be the trade-off between the availability of something like water as opposed to the availability of something like a diamond of course if we were di if we were starving of thirst in the desert and uh, we needed water then then the value of the water would be a lot higher than the value of the diamond because of the needs uh, at that time if those certain needs are fulfilled, then the needs and wants, the trade-off in terms of cost, will change uh, as time passes. Remember our general rule that we're going to have in place all the time, our scarcity type of rule, is that we're going to have unlimited wants and we're going to have limited needs. So we're always thinking in terms of economics that we're going to want more things, we're going to want better things. As the income level rises, most people tend to be able to spend the increase in their income levels. And of course, there's going to be limited resources. What are those limits on the resources? There's going to be limits in terms of time, of money for individuals. Uh, what kind of income? What's their what's their wealth? What type of time and energy do they have as well? Of course, that's going to be a major restriction in terms of uh, the consumption. In terms of individual choice, then we're going to need to, based on that scarcity of time and money, prioritize that time and money in order to purchase the things that we want to purchase in some kind of order. In order to measure people's wants, we have to go beyond money. we got to use a term, and a term has basically been made up called utility. Utility is going to be an abstract term. It's not going to be the most easy thing to define and we can't really define it as well as we can with money. We can't have a set unit of measure but conceptually a term like utility can help us to understand uh, people's desires in a more more full way than just the concept of money. So what is utility? We're going to say that people's goal is to basically have well-being, to be happy and that's going to be measures of utility. So utility we're going to we're going to imagine units of happiness. We're going to imagine as uh, when people make decisions to go by and get that next drink of soda that they have some type of utility measure that they think is going to increase their happiness in some way. We're going to try to unitize that in terms of the somewhat abstract term of utility so that we can use that conceptually to uh, plot some and go through some thinking processes in order to put the process in a formal pattern. So the idea being that utility is something that, that people want. People's goal is to maximize utility when we're thinking about consumption, our goal is to consume in such a way that we maximize the utility, meaning we're going to spend our money, spend our time, spend our resources in those things that are geared towards the maximization of utility in terms of happiness or well-being.
Why is this important? How does this work? Well, it really helps us to conceptualize and kind of graph things that we intuitively really know. So, for example, if we were going to purchase something like uh, pizza or something like that, and um, we're thinking about how much we want to purchase, again, if we look at utility, it's going to be more accurate than, than just the cost of the pizza. So, if we're saying, for example, that we're going to purchase pizza, that first slice of pizza is going to be something that we're really going to want, we might say that in terms of utilities, we get 30 utilities out of the first slice of pizza. And uh, again, that's going to be somewhat of an abstract number. But if we can put that abstract number to it, then we can basically graph this out. If we say the second slice of pizza, we're saying that uh, we go up to 80 units of utility. And the third slice of pizza, we're going up to 110 utility. And the fourth slice of pizza, we, got, we, we go up to 130 of utility. If we graph these out, we'll actually see a curve here. And the curve will basically be sloping upwards. And then at some point, it's going to have diminishing returns. And then at some point, we're going to say we don't want any more pizza, even if it's, you know, we don't want to purchase the next piece of pizza at all. And therefore, uh, the utility is actually going down. If we had the next piece, it would actually decrease the utility. So the point of this would be that each unit of utility, if we were to graph this out, would actually at some point have diminishing returns. So for example, when we went from zero to one, we said we had 40 utilities of these imaginary benefits, uh, happiness units that, are, that we're having in this. And then when we go from one to two, uh, we went from 40 to 80. So what's the marginal utility? Well, now we're at 80, we were at 40. That's another 40 increase. So the first, second piece of utility of uh, pizza is actually given us as much benefit as the first bit unusual but we're going to say that and then the third piece we're saying the utility is going up to 110 meaning the marginal utility we're getting another 30 units of utility meaning intuitively we're getting full <laughs> so the next piece of pizza not going to give us as much happiness as the first two pieces of pizza so we're saying conceptually the happiness is going down it went from 40 to 30 so our total happiness is going up but it's going up at a diminishing rate meaning it was going up at a rate of 40 now it's going up at a, at a rate of 30. The next piece of pizza is not as uh, giving us as much happiness as the last piece. And then if we go from uh, the third piece to the fourth piece, we're saying we're going to go down to 20, or it's going to the total is going to go up to 130, meaning our total happiness goes up from 110 to 130. But the difference between 130 and 110 is 20. So our marginal utility, again, that that fourth piece is only giving us 20 uh, utilities of marginal utility. It's, it's really going down at this point. And then the fifth piece, we're going to say it goes from total 130 utilities to 140. The difference between 140 and 130 is 10 units. So again, we're still fairly hungry. We still want that last piece. It's actually increasing to our happiness, but uh, at, at, a, at a decreasing rate. And then at some point at the sixth piece, we're saying it's going to go from 140 to 100. Uh, and 30, meaning it went down. <laughs> so we don't really want that six piece. Now the, the marginal utility would be a negative 10, and that would be the conceptual framework. So note we're not talking dollars here, and when you think about this, how would we measure marginal utilities? Very difficult to do. Everybody has a different types of marginal utilities, but the conceptual framework of it makes sense for many basically decision-making processes, meaning we're, when we have something, we're going to want more of it at, at the low level, and then at some point, it's going to increase our total happiness. We're still going to want it, but at a decreasing rate, meaning every more, every next unit is going to give us less happiness than the unit before. And then at some point, we've just had enough. We don't need any more pizza, even if it's free. It actually would be decreasing our marginal utility at that point. That's when we stop consuming. 
Therefore, the official formula for marginal utility is going to be the change in the utility from one unit to the next unit divided by the change in the consumption. And of course, in this case, we were going up one unit at a time, so the change in the consumption was one. So we're going to have change in the utility divided by the change in the consumption level. That will give us the formula for marginal utility. This example gives us the rule or the law of diminishing marginal utility. So the diminishing marginal utility means that there's a tendency for additional unit gained from consuming an additional unit of a good to decrease as consumption increases beyond some point. So that being the idea that as we consume more of a particular good, then we're going to have a diminishing return, meaning the next good is giving us lesser value than the one had before. Total value going up, but at a diminishing uh, marginal utility. The marginal uh, benefit that we're getting is actually going down. What does this mean in terms of decision making? If we put this into a formulaic type of decision making process, we can say that we want to consume an additional unit as long as the marginal utility benefit is greater than the marginal cost. So we are going to keep going as long as the marginal benefit, the benefit we're getting from the next unit, is greater than the marginal cost. Keep that in mind, it'll come up a lot. As we consume more of most goods, the marginal utility decreases as the quantity increases. So as we produce, as we make more or as we consume more, the marginal utility for each unit decreases as quantity increases and if we go the other way, of course, the marginal utility increases as quantity decreases, meaning as we have less, if we were going to reduce the amount that we were going to consume, then the marginal utility for that particular good would go up. Now we're going to expand this concept in terms of a budget. So we're going to try to put this utility concept in terms of dollars. How does this help us with a budget allocation? And we're going to maximize utility when the marginal utility per dollar spent is the same for all goods. So we're going to apply this marginal utility to dollars in terms of how we're going to make choices between one or two items. In theory, what this means is we're going to basically take dollars away from the goods with the low marginal utility and spend those dollars on the goods that have the higher marginal utilities. And at the end of the day, these two things will then equalize each other out. And that'll give us our distribution in terms of what we should be purchasing. This rule gives us the rational spending rule. The rational spending rule means that we should be spending, uh, should be allocated across goods so that the marginal utility per dollar is the same for each good. A basic example of this is, would say if we had a good A and good B and we're saying that the prices are different. We're saying that the price of the first good is $1, the price of the second good is $2. If we looked at our, our marginal utility for good A versus good B and we said that the marginal utility for good A is uh, 12 and the marginal utility for good B is 16. So the next unit would give us 12 for A, 16 for B. That uh, would mean that B would be better off in terms of that's what we would want all else being equal. But all else isn't equal. The price of A is uh, $1 and the price of B is $2. Therefore, how, do we, how can we account for this? We can take the marginal utility, that, that conceptual unit, and divide it by the dollar amount. So for unit A, we're going to take the $12, 12 uh, marginal utility divided by $1, which gives us 12. And then for unit B, we're going to take the 16, the higher marginal utility, but we got to divide it by $2. It costs $2. Therefore, the marginal utility per dollar is 8. So in that particular instant, we have the marginal utility per dollar being being at eight for uh, unit uh, B and 12 for unit A. So unit A being higher in this case than B. And that's how we can basically take that utility and allocate it out through 
uh, and compare it to the price to make those types of decision making. How does this relate to the rational spending rule? So what's going to end up happening is we're going to we're going to end up spending in such a way, and we're going to spend on the types of goods where the marginal utility of unit A, in this example, divided by the price equals the marginal utility of B divided by the price. That's where we would maximize the utility per dollar. This gives us a way to really map out and conceptualize with numbers types of things like the substitution effect, meaning when the price of one good goes up, uh, substitutes for the goods are, are relatively more attractive. And it gives us, we know that intuitively, we, we've discussed that intuitively, obviously when the price of something goes up, it's more likely that substitutes will be in place and people will buy the substitute instead of buying that particular good. Uh, we just haven't had a way really before this to really map this out in terms of graphically and these types of concepts gives us a way to really show this decision-making process that we usually make intuitively uh, in terms of graphic forms to really map out uh, this process. If we can conceptualize the total market demand curve, we can basically think about it as a all the individual demand curves within a market. And if we add all the individual demand curves up, then we would get the total demand curve. Now, in practice, of course, we can't actually do this. We can't actually add up everybody's individual demand curves. But in theory, we can basically think this out. We can think through what it would look like if we were to just visualize and we were trying to pick up everybody's individual demand curves in order to get that total market demand curve. So, for example, if we just had three people in a particular market, A, B, and C, and we said that at prices 2, 4, 6, and 8, A had demand of at 2, demanding 8, at 6, demand at $4, demanding 6 units, at $6, demanding 4 units, and at $8, demanding 2 units, and we also had B, and at $2, B wanted 5 uh, units rather than 8. So notice that they're going to have different levels, different levels of how much they would purchase at different prices, different demand curves for the individuals. And then at 4 units, at $4, B wants 3 units. At $6, B wants uh, 1 unit. And at $8, B doesn't want any units. A was still willing to buy 2, two units at uh, the $8, B doesn't want any and then C isn't really interested at all. If you bring the price down to $2, then C will buy one unit. Otherwise, $4, anything higher than that, C doesn't want to be in the market at all. If we were to add up then, if we were to graph these out, we could see those downward sloping demand curves. If we were to add them up, then we can get the market demand curves. The market demand curve then would be at $2. We'd have uh, eight units would be purchased by A, five units from B and one unit from C being 14 units total demand curve for $2. At $4, A wants six units, B wants three units, and C wants zero units. Six and three is the nine, so the total demand curve at $4 would be at nine. And in terms of $6, if we had the price at $6, A still wants four units, B wants one unit, C wants zero units for a total of five units. And finally at $8, then A is still in the market for two units, but everybody's out else is out of the market in terms of the other two. <laughs> so we only have two. So that's how you can basically conceptualize what that total demand curve would be. If we were to graph that out, we could see that the we can graph out the three individual demand curves. They would be those downward sloping from left to right. They'd be sloping downward as prices go up, the less is demanded. And at any given level, if we added up the demand curves, the quantity at any given price, then we would see the outer demand curve on the outside 
to the right of the individual demand curves being pushed at the far out demand curve, that would be the total demand curve for the market. Consumer surplus is the difference between the buyer's reservation price and the market price. So the example we gave, we have different people that have, would be entering the market at different levels. And the price that we would be willing to pay, the consumer would be willing to pay, as far as that is above the market price, the price that is actually being set, then that's going to be their particular consumer surplus. When we talk about a market price, then we're going, to have, we're going to set the market price and there's going to be that downward sloping demand curve. That downward sloping demand curve represents the fact that there would be some people that would be willing to pay a higher price and there's some people that, that won't be willing to pay that price at all. For example, if we had a downward sloping demand curve and we said that at a price of $11, people are willing to buy one unit and a price of $10, we can have two units that are going to be willing to be purchased at a price of $9. As the price goes down to $9, three units can be sold at a price of $8. We're saying that four units can be sold and so on and so forth. What that means is that at a price of 11, only one unit is going to be sold. Only one person's going into the market. And there's no real consumer surplus there because they were willing to pay 11. That's the top price they're willing to pay. And that's what they purchased it for. So there's no real surplus. But if the price goes down to 10, so $10, what happens is a new person enters the market or that individual purchases another uh, one willing to pay $10 being that would be the highest price they would be willing to pay. However, they would have been willing to pay $11 for the prior unit. So uh, an, an individual would have been willing to pay 11. They were able to pay 10 for that first unit and therefore they have a consumer surplus of the difference between those two. If we go down to $9, same idea. Another person is willing to enter the market if we're or if we're thinking of one individual, we're thinking that of that one individual is willing to buy another one at that lower price of $9. And therefore they, they were willing to buy another unit at $10 and that first unit at $11 and therefore there's going to be a surplus of those two units that would have been purchased at those higher prices and so on and so forth. We go down to $8 then another person was willing to enter the market but the another but one person was willing to pay $11 for the first unit and $10 for the next unit and nine and they're only paying $8 for all the units therefore they're getting a surplus in that regard so if we think about the entire market in that way we can say that everything above the price and below the demand curve is going to be the consumer surplus so if we think about the graph the downward sloping demand curve and we set the price at a particular level then the triangle that's going to be related that right triangle is going to be what the consumer surplus is. How do we calculate the area of the right triangle? It's going to be the base times the height divided by two. So if we consider the full demand and supply curve, we think of our standard graph and we've got our upward, our downward sloping demand curve and our upward sloping supply curve and they meet at equilibrium, then that equilibrium point is setting the price and quantity. That's where the price and quantity would be set. If we draw a line from the equilibrium point to the y-axis, the price axis, then that would be the price. And then if we draw a line up from that uh, price to where the demand curve intersects the price axis, then everything under the demand curve, we would see a triangle. We would see a right triangle that would, would be graphed there. That right triangle, the area of that triangle represents the consumer surplus. This being a big deal because, of course, that consumer surplus is representing what consumers are benefit. That's the benefit that they're getting from uh, this, this particular market in this case.